Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I hope that you guys had a wonderful Monday and you are on your way to a wonderful Tuesday. I am coming to you on this fine Tuesday morning with not one, but two deals from Palmetto State Armory. The first is a spectacular deal on a Springfield Armory XDM Elite 9mm pistol. It has an extended threaded barrel and suppressor height iron sights and an ability to take a red dot if you so choose to put one on there. Uh, This gear up bundle also includes five 22 round magazines and one 35 round magazine. Regular price is $699.99, but you can pick it up today for only $499.99. In addition, there's a clearance sale on SIG's Romeo MSR2 MOA Red Dot for only $99. Well, $99.99. Got to get the sense on there. Um, Those links, as always, are in the show description, and I encourage you to snag them while you can. They are both in stock as of recording. I have to keep putting that disclaimer on here. Because there's been multiple times where like the price has changed or it's not been in stock. So as of recording, those two deals are available. In a display of pure sadness, thousands of guns were surrendered across New York on Saturday in exchange for gift cards as part of the state's gun buyback program. According to the New York Attorney General Letitia James, whose office organized the event, more than 3,000 guns, including various assault-style rifles and ghost guns, were given up in what she hailed as a landmark event. Individuals who surrendered assault-style rifles, whatever that means, and ghost guns, which are guns built from firearm parts sold unassembled. I love how they have to put these disclaimers in here. Uh, They were given $500 gift cards, Participants who turned in handguns also received $500 for their first weapon and an additional $150 for each additional handgun surrendered. In total, nine buyback locations were set up across the state, including two in New York City. At one of the buyback locations in Brooklyn, officials reported that they received 90 guns in just three hours, with the Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez being especially pleased by the amount of smaller guns that were surrendered. There's a lot of firepower on this table, Gonzalez said, and each and every one of these guns is a potential life saved and a non-fatal shooting avoided, he added. Nope, that's not what those guns represent. Meanwhile, in Syracuse, 751 firearms were relinquished by residents. The vast surrender came just days after the Syracuse mayor, Ben Walsh, attributed the rising number of guns to the city's increase in the rate of violent crime. There are too many damn guns in this country. They're everywhere. We have too many states that are abdicating their responsibility to ensure that guns are being sold safely. Our federal government is abdicating their responsibility to ensure that guns are being handled safely. Um, He said, adding that Syracuse officials have so far removed 76 guns from the community this year compared with 55 guns that were removed at the same time last year. Of the guns seized, 90% hailed from out of state, said Walsh. Now, remember, he's talking about guns that were seized in crimes. They were 
and I just want to put this number out there again, 90% of those guns came from out of state. So you got to keep in mind, these are criminals that are committing acts of crime and they have guns from out of state. And you think that criminals aren't going to continue to do this? Like, oh boy. Okay. Sometimes when you read this type of stuff, you realize how much people are being gaslit by the government. Of those guns that were surrendered for cash, how many criminals do you think went to the tables of cops and turned their firearms in? I would argue very few, if any. Those guns were turned in by law-abiding citizens who think that if they give up their guns, it will solve the gun problem. Problem is, they weren't using those guns to commit crimes. They weren't killing anyone with them. They had them in their homes. They took them hunting. They inherited them from family members and likely, most of them, have no idea what they had from a value perspective. They certainly weren't the people committing crimes with firearms. If law-abiding citizens keep surrendering their firearms, the only people left with them will be the state and criminals. I haven't brought any science news to the show in a while, but I found the story pretty fascinating. Some of you know that my mother has a brain tumor and will be having surgery to have it removed in June. They aren't sure if it's benign or cancerous and won't know until they get it out, but I've been doing a lot of research on the procedure that she's having done and whatnot, so this article popped up likely because the algorithm is nosy AF. Um, John Hopkins University researchers have developed an experimental brain cancer treatment that not only cured 100% of mice that receive it, I want to say that number one more time, 100% cure rate, but it also trained their immune systems to fight future cancers. The challenge, glioblastoma, which is a rare but aggressive type of brain cancer, only 5% of patients live for more than five years after they're diagnosed. The average survival time is just 12 to 18 months. It's considered the deadliest type of cancer. The standard glioblastoma treatment regimen starts with surgery to remove as much of the tumor as possible. After that, patients typically undergo chemo, radiation to kill lingering cells. And while this approach can buy patients some time, it's almost impossible to kill every cancer cell. And as a result, glioblastoma almost always recurs. The new brain cancer treatment developed at John Hopkins is a hydrogel that's applied to the space left in the brain after a glioblastoma tumor has been surgically removed. In the gel are nano-sized threads of paclitaxel, which is an existing FDA-approved chemotherapy drug used to treat certain cancers outside of the brain. These threads serve as a delivery vehicle for patients and antibody that binds to CD47 which is a protein that cancer cells make to avoid being attacked by white blood cells called macrophages or macrophages. I'm not sure how to say it because I'm not super smart. Um, Like the people who make up these words, when the antibody sticks to cancer cells, it interferes with that protection and lets the macrophages target the cancer. To test the experimental brain cancer treatment, the researchers implanted brain tumors in mice and then divided them into six groups of eight mice. Mice in one group didn't have their tumors removed. They died a median of 22 days after tumor implantation. Mice in another group had their tumors surgically removed eight days after implantation. Those survived a median of just 28.5 days. 
Two other groups of mice were treated with a hydrogel containing either the only the antibody or only paclitaxel after having their tumors removed. Mice in those groups survived a median of 39 and 63 days. Another group of mice got a hydrogel containing both the chemo drug and the antibody, but did not have their tumors removed first. Half of those mice managed to survive for 80 days, long enough to be considered, quote, long-term survivors. A final group was treated with the combined antibody plus chemohydrogel after tumor removal surgery. All of those mice lived at least 80 days and showed no signs of recurrence. Side effects were minimal, at least as far as researchers can observe in mice. This hydrogel combines both chemotherapy and immunotherapy intracranially. The gel is implanted at the time of tumor resection, which makes it work really well. The new brain cancer treatment seems to do more than just kill cancer cells missed during surgery, too. On day 80, after the initial tumor implantation, the researchers re-challenged any surviving mice with tumor cells. When they checked those rodents again 20 days later, they found no signs of cancer in the brains of those that had been treated with the fully loaded hydrogel. These results strongly substantiate that a robust and durable anti-tumor memory immune response was established by a single localized hydrogel treatment. Given that only half of the mice that did not have their tumors removed before treatment survived the full 80 days, it doesn't seem like John Hopkins' new hydrogel could completely eliminate the need for surgery. Still, if the results of the mice study translate even somewhat to humans, always a big if, the hydrogel could provide new hope for people with this deadly disease. We don't usually see a 100% survival rate in mouse models of this disease. Thinking that there is a potential for this new hydrogel combination to change that survival curve for glioblastoma patients is very exciting. This hydrogel will now disappear and we'll never hear about it again because the illness is more profitable than the cure. The U.S. military is tracking another mysterious balloon that flew over American soil, but it's not clear what it is or whom it belongs to, according to three U.S. officials. The object flew across portions of Hawaii, but did not go over any sensitive areas, the officials said. The U.S. military has been tracking it since late last week and has determined that it poses no threat to aerial traffic or national security, and it is not communicating signals. Hmm. This story sounds familiar. Where have I heard this before? It's not clear if it's a weather balloon or something else, the official said, adding that the United States could still shoot it down if it nears land. The object, which does not appear to have maneuverability, is moving slowly toward Mexico. The officials um, do not believe the balloon belongs to the Chinese, but they are still working to identify the owner. A spokesperson For the National Security Council referred questions about the object to the Defense Department. In a statement Monday afternoon, a Pentagon spokesperson said the balloon was floating at 36,000 feet with no indication that it was maneuvering or being controlled by a foreign or adversarial actor. The balloon did not transit directly over defense critical infrastructure or other U.S. government sensitive sites, nor did it pose a military or physical threat to people on the ground. 
a spokesman for Indo-Pacific Command, said, We responded to an unidentified radar signature Friday in the vicinity of the island of Hawaii. Pacific Air Forces launched three F-22s to assess the situation and visually identified a spherical object. We monitored the transit of the object and assist, assessed <laughs> that it posed no threat. A likely story. Nearly 40 years ago, in Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council, the Supreme Court ruled that courts should defer to a federal agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute that, as long as that interpretation is reasonable. On Monday, the Supreme Court agreed to reconsider its ruling in Chevron. The question comes to the court in a case brought by a group of commercial com- I cannot talk. A group of commercial fishing companies. They challenged a rule issued by the National Marine Fisheries Service that requires the fishing industry to pay for the cost of observers who monitor compliance with fishery management plans. Relying on Chevron, a divided panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit rejected the company's challenge to the rule. Judge Judith Rogers explained that although federal fishery law makes clear that the government can require fishing boats to carry monitors, it does not specifically address who must pay for the monitors. Because the NF- NMFS's interpretation of the federal fishery law as authorizing industry-funded monitors was a reasonable one, Rogers concluded the court should defer to that interpretation. Some members of the court's conservative majority have been critical of the Chevron doctrine in recent years. Justice Clarence Thomas has been among the doctrine's most vocal critics, arguing in a concurring opinion in 2015 that Chevron deference rests from courts the ultimate interpretive authority to say what the law is, and hands it over to the executive branch. Shocker, the executive branch once again bringing in more power and control? I just can't imagine. He was joined by Justice Neil Gorsuch, who, in a dissent from the denial of review last fall, argued that the court should acknowledge forthrightly that Chevron did not undo and could not have undone the judicial duty to provide an independent judgment of the law's meaning in the cases that come before the nation's courts. The case Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo is likely to be argued in the fall, with the decision to follow sometime in 2024. Justice Kentanji Brown Jackson has recused herself from the case, presumably because she participated in the oral argument in the case while she was still a judge on the D.C. Circuit. In Murray versus UBS Securities, the second case granted on Monday's order list, the justices will consider the interpretation of the whistleblower protection provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which bars publicly traded companies from discriminating against employees who report wrongdoing. Specifically, is the employee required to show that the employer intended to discriminate against him because of his whistleblowing? Or is it instead enough for the employee to show that his whistleblowing was a contributing factor in the employer's action against him, at which which point the employer then has the burden to show that it would have taken the action anyway? The question comes to the court in the case of Trevor Murray, a research strategist at UBS Securities, who was fired after he reported efforts to improperly influence his reports to his supervisor. 
A jury ruled for Murray and awarded him back pay and compensatory damages, but the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit reversed. In its view, the jury should have been instructed that Murray had to prove that UBS fired him because it intended to retaliate against him. The justice's next regularly scheduled private conference is Thursday, May 11th, with orders from that conference expected on Monday, May 15th. Hunter Biden appeared in an Arkansas court Monday for a hearing on a paternity case. An Arkansas woman who is the mother of one of his children alleged that Hunter has ignored court orders requiring him to turn over records about his finances. She asked an Arkansas judge to hold him in contempt and send him to jail. London Roberts accused Biden of failing to provide discovery in the case, saying he's playing games with this court. Biden's actions are a willful and flagrant violation of this court's previous order entered on the defendant's motion. Roberts' lawyer, Jennifer Lancaster, wrote in a filing last month, this court should incarcerate the defendant in the Claiborne County Detention Center until he complies with the court's order and answers discovery. In the alternative, this court should sanction the defendant as as appropriate and just. Independence County Circuit Judge Holly Meyer ruled last week that all parties must appear for a contempt hearing Monday to address the allegations. Robert said in a previous court filing that a DNA test established with scientific certainty that Hunter Biden is the father of her child. He had previously denied that he had fathered the four-year-old child, but agreed to take a paternity test. He agreed in 2020 to pay monthly child support, but the case remains ongoing. Hunter Biden has become a target of Republicans over his financial dealings. He tried to turn it into political, but his legal team met with prosecutors at the Justice Department last week to discuss potential charges in criminal tax investigation. And NBC News has reported that federal prosecutors are currently considering charging Biden with two misdemeanor counts of failure to file taxes, a felony count of tax evasion related to a business expense for a year of taxes, and a potential felony gun charge related to a firearms purchase. Ask me how much time I think Hunter Biden will serve or how much child support he'll be required to pay for this kid. The godfather of AI is issuing a warning about the technology he helped create. Jeffrey Hinton, a trailblazer in artificial intelligence, has joined the growing list of experts sharing their concerns about the rapid advancement of AI. The renowned computer scientist recently left his job at Google to speak openly about his worries about the technology and where he sees it going. It is hard to see how you can prevent the bad actors from using it for bad things, Hinton said in an interview. Hinton is worried that future versions of the technology pose a real threat to humanity. The idea that this stuff could actually get smarter than people, a few people believed that he said in the interview, but most people thought it was way off. I thought it was way off. I thought it was 30 to 50 years or even longer away. Obviously, I no longer think that. Hinton, who is 75, is most noted for the rapid development of deep learning, which uses mathematical structures called neural networks to pull patterns from massive sets of data. Like other experts, he believes the race between big tech to develop more powerful AI will only escalate in a global race. Hinton tweeted Monday morning that he felt Google had acted responsibly in its development of AI, but that he had to leave the company to speak out. 
Jeff Dean, Senior Vice President of Google Research and AI, said in an emailed statement, Jeff has made foundational breakthroughs in AI, and we appreciate his decade of contributions at Google. I'm deep, I've deeply enjoyed our many conversations over the years. I'll miss him, and I wish him well. As one of the first companies to publish AI principles, we remain committed to a responsible approach to AI. We're continually learning to understand emerging risks while also innovating boldly. Yeah, uh, this coming from the same company who has actively worked to subvert uh, information sharing, like the idea that any of these tech organizations, after what we've seen in the Twitter files, would work to the benefit of society and not to the benefit of themselves or the government is just foolhardy. Like it just, it's not possible. An open letter from the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, which was signed by 19 current and former leaders of academic society, was released last month, warning the public of the risks around AI and the need for collaboration to mitigate some of those concerns. We believe that AI will be increasingly game-changing in healthcare, climate, education, engineering, and many other fields, the letter said. At the same time, we are aware of the limitations and concerns about AI advances, including the potential for AI systems to make errors, to provide biased recommendations, to threaten our privacy, to empower bad actors with new tools, and to have an impact on jobs. The best thing to happen by far since Elon Musk took over Twitter is community notes. The ability for blue checks spewing propagandized talking points to be fact-checked by the public has resulted in the best entertainment that money can buy, and it's free. MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan lashed out after his tweet about racial crime stats was fact-checked by Twitter's community notes on Friday. Hassan shared a clip from his show where he criticized HBO host Bill Maher for his comments about crime being out of control in places like Chicago and the Democratic Party not doing much to solve it and for the media not discussing it. White people kill other white people at almost the same rate black people kill other black people, and yet you never hear anyone complaining about white-on-white crime. These aren't points of sage wisdom from Maher. They are classic racist dog whistles, Hassan tweeted. Shortly after his tweet, Twitter's community notes feature fact-checked the post by linking to FBI crime statistics from 2019, which showed black-on-black crime was proportionately higher than white-on-white crime. According to the 2019 FBI stats, there were 2,594 white-on-white homicides, 2,574 black-on-black homicides. In 2019, white population in the United States was 60.1% of the total population. Black was 12.2%. Thus, the per capita murder rate was much higher in the black-on-black group, the community note stated. Hassan responded to the backlash with a quote from a USA Today article. Rates of white-on-white and black-on-black homicide are similar, at around 80 and 90%. Overall, Most homicides in the United States are interracial, intra-racial, I apologize, and the rates of white-on-white and black-on-black killings are similar, he tweeted. Again, the Twitter community notes feature fact-checked this post, writing, the rate of black-on-black killings, 53.38 per million, was 
roughly 5.3 times higher than that of white on white, 10.03 per million in the U.S. in 2019. According to data from the FBI and the Census Bureau, black killers killed 89% of black victims. White killers killed 79% of white victims. Hassan went on to condemn the Community Notes feature as a right-wing weapon. If you had any doubt that Community Notes has become another weapon of the right on Musk's Twitter, see the bullshit Community Note added to my Bill Maher clip after MAGA folks demanded it, he wrote. It makes a point that is irrelevant to the one I am making regarding intraracial rates of killing. Twitter's Community Notes feature fact-checked him a third time, citing rules in Twitter's official Community Notes page and said, Community Notes does not work by majority rules. <laughs> to identify notes that are helpful to a wide range of people, notes require agreement between contributors who have sometimes disagreed in their past ratings. This helps prevent one-sided ratings, it stated. <laughs> However, will the liars continue to make money and lie if the truth has the opportunity to peek through? That is your Tuesday edition of everything yesterday this morning. Thank you for joining me this morning. I hope you guys have a great day and I will see you tomorrow. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.